Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello. Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, it's a beautiful Friday. We're going to come to you in Toronto, blue skies. We have our power back here. For folks that didn't know, the center of the universe lost power yesterday for about a half a day downtown and the world caved in. Uh, but I managed to somehow be in the only square block that didn't and didn't know <laughs> until 5 o'clock. But I am so excited to join you today. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. This is digging in a bunch of issues. Uh, one, we're going to talk to a, a TikToker, uh, who, a vegan as well, who happened to, to order vegan meals on flights. And as somebody who doesn't have my own dietary issues with gluten and dairy, I've also had this scenario where you order the meal and it arrives and it's like a rice cake and an apple. Um, but she had an even worse experience. So she took to online to TikTok to air her grievances. And you won't believe the reaction that she got. So we'll get into that story for sure. We're also going to talk later on the show in the back hour, which, as you know, is the uh, is the roundtable where we get kind of the biggest talkers some of the smartest people in the country to debate big issues. We're going to talk about airlines taking advantage of loopholes. Yes, as if you. Oh, I'm back, I think. If you weren't mad at sorry about that, if you weren't mad enough already about uh, airlines not traveling well enough, um, we've got they've got a new trick they're paying and talk about that what some families are doing to fight and what the government's doing and if they need to do more. We also want to debate this issue, and I'd love your feedback at 71010 about this one because I have kind of a more of a, a tougher stance. Parents are getting some heat for making their kids pay rent after the age of 18. And obviously we know life is expensive. People are staying at home longer. I get all of that. But I do feel a little bit like, you know, when I was a kid, I did all the laundry in the house. Um, we cleaned the d- kitchen every day. You know, my sister was in charge of the mowing the lawn and the back. Like, we did not, there were no excuses in the Galbraith home when I was younger. So uh, we definitely want to, I want to dig into that and do that debate. How how hard do you need to be on your kids? How hard do we need to be to force them to actually uh, pay, carry their weight? Is it chores? Is it rent? Uh, you know, that'll certainly be, I know that had heated up the text board and, and sort of calls this week, so we want to dig into that. And then this next topic is a kind of a really interesting one to me. And I, I've often on the show as a female host, I uh, try to talk about issues that are important to women because I think it's important to elevate that. And in sports is is on the front front burner this week in the country for a variety of reasons. But this story was really interesting. And there's one such remarkable woman we had in Canada um, recently just playing on Wednesday, Serena Williams. She also announced this week that she's retiring from tennis. Here's Williams speaking about that. Freedom. <laughs> yeah. I love playing, though. It's It's like, it's amazing, but... You know, it's like, I can't do this forever. So it's just like, sometimes you just want to try your best to enjoy the moments and do the best that you can. So that's her with her mixed emotions about, she's, I should say, she's not calling it retirement, but an evolution. Um, Serena Williams, as mentioned, is a remarkable athlete. She's won 855 matches, four Olympic gold medals, holds 47 hardcore titles in tennis. Ten of her Grand Slam titles came after the age of 30, and she spent 319 weeks as the sport's number one player. So she played her final match in Canada in Toronto at the National Bank Open. She lost, but she was obviously celebrated by, by the crowds and fans. This is what it sounded like. She also said she looks forward to visiting Toronto again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Toronto has great, great sports, so I'm excited about that. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a joy playing in front of you guys all these years, so thank you. 
So you can hear kind of the tears in her eye, tears in her voice as she's leaving the court. Um, she's an incredible example of female greatness. She drives lots of media, lots of interest, um, and she's also used her platform not only to make things better for female athletes, but also women of color. Which is why when this story appeared in the Toronto Star this morning, it struck me as particularly important to talk about. So she was playing at the National Bank Open, which is a tournament in Canada, and both in Montreal and Toronto, previously known as the Rogers Cup. The total purse for men's tennis in this, and which is being played largely in Montreal, is $4.9 million U.S., that is more than twice as much as what the women make in Toronto at $2.6 million. Now, this is divided up amongst all the players, but basically what this means is the men's champion will win twice as much as the female champion. So $900,000 compared to $439,000. So this gap persists even though prize money in tennis majors has been equal largely since 2007. For example, in Wimbledon, both men and women get $2.5 million. Now, some people are making arguments that women attract, attract less Ad dollars, right? So that's why we pay them less. So, for example, Tennis Canada said they earn 10 times more in their global broadcast revenue from men's than from women's. And fair enough. Fair enough, right? I think that's a fair argument. But my question to you, to listeners, to sponsors, is should we accept that? So in reading this article, it's a really interesting dive into it, and you should look it up. Um, there's a woman named Katie LaBelle. She's an assistant professor at the University of Guelph who specializes in gender equity in sports. And she talked about the factors hindering earning potential for women in sports. And she said they're deeply institutionalized, they're widely accepted. And that's why change is slow. And that's why women are not paid equally. So yes, you can argue that they attract less odd dollars. But I don't accept that as a, as a rationale or a reason why we pay women less. I think you can also argue that women's participation in sports is just far, yeah, you can also argue it's far behind the development of men, right? Women haven't been playing professional sports as long as men have. So that if naturally those um, those games, those those you know, whatever, are far behind that. But that does that make it okay to pay women less? Um, I feel like it's sort of a similar argument that was made in the 50s when we said women shouldn't be paid as much as men because they're not worth as much or we just don't need the money as much, right? Like, I just don't, I don't accept it. I don't. I'm all for free markets. Uh, generally, I am. But why are we allowing the market with, as we've said, an institutionalized bias to dictate how much we pay female athletes? We want to attract the best and the brightest. Women's sports are, and in fact, I talked to some people, even um, you know Jerry Agar this morning said he watched tennis closely. He loves watching women's game more than men because there's more volume, because there's more back and forth. Right? It's a more engaging, interesting sport. So I guess my question to you is what you think about this. And what struck me is watching this, this incredible woman, Serena Williams, retire for all she's done with sports, for all the, you know, the boundaries that she's pushed. The fact that she would still make half the amount of money as a male athlete is insane <laughs> to me. It's fully insane. And yes, I know that you know, fighting against or playing against those male athletes, she would likely lose, and she said that before. But I still don't think that that devalues the game and what she brings to it. And this isn't just tennis, right? Soccer had a similar evolution. So my message today on this one, my rant, if you will, is shame on the National Bank Open. Shame on them for not providing equal pay for women. And we as fans, we as we as women, we as listeners, we as, you know, whatever else need to demand more of these sponsors. Because it's harder, like it is, a, is a different environment for female athletes. And actually, in her retirement, Serena Williams talked about this. She talked about her decision to leave tennis, which, as I mentioned, she's calling an evolution, not a retirement. And she wrote about her reluctance to do so, right, and the burden that as a female athlete she plays. She said she wanted to keep going. She'd love to be a Tom Brady, but she has to prioritize growing her family as a woman, and that's her that's her burden as a female, right? And as it struck home to me, um, as a female, like as a woman myself. 
like I'm also pregnant. I'm eight months pregnant right now, and I get to go take a, like potentially a whole year off work. Candidly, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to take time off from the show. I love speaking to you guys every week. I don't want to take time off from my job. But that is part of what I am, you know, I'm going to be able to breastfeed. I'm going to raise this kid. I've been growing this child for the last eight months in my body, um, for better or for worse <laughs> times. And, you know, if, if it was up, I, I don't, I'm not genetically more predisposed to take a pause. And that's an additional burden. So that hit home for me. So she, she played through, she was two months pregnant, I think, when she won a Grand Slam. She's played through all these things. I just think as women, we fight harder you know, Serena Williams is an amazing example of that. And the idea that she still makes less than men in a sport that she has dominated to me is absolutely bananas. And the fact that's happening on Canadian soil and we're letting that happen, we're letting people get away with it to me is not okay. So National Bank open if you're listening. And I'm sure National Bank, you're a lovely place. But you need to demand better from tennis. We need to pay women equally. And we need to pay female athletes equally and acknowledge the incredible work they've done, the incredible uh you know, sport they play and, and just even the great value that they bring to us every day. And hopefully as we break down those barriers, you know, viewers and all those things will go up as we go through it. So that's my rant, friends, for the week. We have a great show, as I mentioned for you. Uh, this issue after the break we're going to get into is a heavy new endorsement and bad polls spell trouble for CPC leadership frontrunner Pierre Polyev. We're going to talk to a party insider about that after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. And as you will know by now, all summer long, it's an extra two hours. So normally I'm on one to two, but you get an extra special hour with me off the top. And today we are going to get into the CPC leadership race. I know we've covered this a lot on the show, but there were some interesting developments this week, including the fact that former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark yesterday endorsed Jean Charest to be the next leader of the federal conservatives at a time where she says the party is racing to extremes. Clark made these comments following an impassioned speech she delivered in Edmonton to, to, to a room full of conservatives gathered to discuss the need for the federal, federal party to sit closer to the center. Um, she said politicians who divide and create opportunities for others can do the same. This is uh, Christy Clark right here. And so now we're watching the Conservative Party of Canada make its race for the extremes, to play to the very edges of the political divide. And I think some days their rhetoric is just as bad or even worse. She also said she recently received her ballot on the mail and will be voting in the contest. You know, I think Jean Charest would be a fantastic prime minister. Now, this is interesting to me because one, Christy Clark is like is actually known as a what we call like a blue liberal. Um, so she was liberal premier of BC, although they don't have a very big provincial conservative party. So you could argue there are conservatives within that, but she's she's more known as a liberal than a conservative. So one, it's news to me that she's a member of the party. Um, but this also comes with we have one month left to cast their ballots for the new leader on September sixth is the deadline. The main rivalries we know is between Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest. Uh, almost 700,000 members can cast their vote in the race, and only 174,000 thus far have cast their ballot as of yesterday. So joining me to talk about this is a longtime conservative strategist, Gary Keller. He's also the vice president of Strategy Corps, and believe it or not, he used to be my boss when I worked in Ottawa. Gary, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you, Amanda. 
So yeah, like they were they were giving me a list of the conservative strategists. Sam was my producer after. I'm like, I want Gary. <laughs> he used to boss me around in Ottawa. It's lovely, lovely to hear from you again, my friend. It's great to be with you, and you can boss me around now. So there you go. <laughs> the tables have now turned. Um, so what do you, what do you make of this Christy Clark? endorsement i mean personally i i love this woman i think she's a really incredible politician um if she ran for dog catcher i'd probably go help her campaign um but i don't know if this really helps sean charay in this race but i'd be curious on your take you know i found it interesting because i think this is the first time that christy clark has ever been a member of the federal conservative party uh you know i think there was the fact that she's taken out of membership it's good for her you know i'm all about a big tent the more the merrier uh, because I think a big tent will uh, ultimately is a benefit to the Conservative Party. But, you know, Christy Clark, there, there was a push, I think, among some federal conservatives to make her an attractive alternative post-Stephen Harper as a potential leader of the party. And that never really took off, because I think there's a lot of people in the Conservative Party who don't trust the fact that for a long time she was seen to be more aligned with Jean Chrétien and the Liberals and Paul Martin Liberals than anything that Stephen Harper ever offered, even as, as a premier. And so, you know, I, like I say, great to have her with, uh, with us in the Conservative Party, but I, you know, I, I have some questions about you know, why now? And, and, and again, I'm not surprised that, you know, if it's a choice between Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest, she would support Jean Charest because that's probably more her style of politics. And having had to be uh, a balancing act as a, as a B.C. liberal premier, which, as you mentioned, is a coalition between liberals and conservatives, uh, you know, she would certainly be more in the center than, uh, than, say, some other people in the conservative party. And am I right to say sort of, again, Christy Clark endorsement is interesting, um, I don't really think it moves the needle significantly for Sheree at this point uh, as a conservative. But it also feels a bit like the issue that's plagued the Sheree campaign to a certain extent, which is, um, you know, there are some folks on his campaign, obviously, who have been longtime members and participants in the party. But Sheree himself has largely been absent from the federal conservative party for the last decade. Um, and Christy Clark has, to my knowledge as well, has never been a member uh, and has been pretty open about the fact that she's sort of a blue liberal or, or like a, you know, like a liberal liberal federally. So it, it just, to me, it feels like it's a bunch of people that haven't participated in the party for the last decade and a bit coming to tell party members who you can argue, you know, have been in opposition. It's hasn't been as joyful as it was in government, um, what, how they're doing it wrong. And I think that to me is, is one of my biggest gripes with the Shrey campaign and why it's alienated folks like myself. But I'd be curious on, on your take on that. I think that's right in a lot of ways in the sense that you do have these people who haven't been involved with the federal conservative party in a long time or maybe never saying oh, all of a sudden we've got the magic solution for uh, for the conservative party. And in some ways I have a lot of sympathy for uh, a centrist view. You know, I think politics is, is always the art of balancing uh, people's uh, demands and, 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 and balancing, you know, a caucus and balancing all the different factors which make you successful and, and able to win a, uh, a government in Canada. And I think that's where a lot of voters tend to be. People who don't follow the day-to-day thrust of, of partisan politics tend to be in the center. The reality in this country is politics has been polarized. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's over the last 10 years, due to social media and other influences, it's polarized both on the left side and on the right side. And there's no bigger practitioner of polarizing politics than Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You know, uh, in 2015, he said, conservatives are our friends and neighbors. That's the last time I've heard that phrase from uh, (laughs) Justin Trudeau. He has been most polarizing as prime minister because 
he's seen that there's political benefit to be polarizing on the left side. And so the counterweight to that, the counterbalance and reaction comes from polarizing views on the right. But at the end of the day, you know, God bless the centralized conservatives. They went, they went to uh, Edmonton. They had a meeting. They had 100 people there. Well, Pierre Polyev <laughs> went to Edmonton. Pierre Polyev went to Edmonton and on two days' notice got 5,000 people. So these are the numbers that we're talking about. And I think Pierre Polyev is certainly more in tune with where the Conservative Party of Canada is right now in terms of its membership than, say, the centralized Conservatives. So to that point, I was going to ask you, Gary, uh, you know, a new Leger poll came out this week that had Pierre Polyev obviously is a heavy favorite among conservatives, but not among the general public. And, you know, you just mentioned the fact that centerized conservatives had 100 people and Pierre had 5,000. Um, and I think that speaks to where the party's head is at. But let's say he wins in September. Uh, where do you think he has to go then as the conservative nominee for, you know, or the conservative leader and potential prime ministerial candidate? Like, does he have to drag the party to the center? Or do we think we're going to have a campaign where the conservatives sit further on the right and the liberals sit further on the left? And there's that open, you know, center ice, uh, as the conservatives have said earlier. So, so a couple of points. On the poll that we saw, I found it interesting that it was an online poll uh, and Leger even said that there was no margin of error on the poll because it is not statistically representative. So I'm going to take the poll maybe a little bit of a grain of salt because uh, even the pollster says we can't put a statistical sample on this. That being said, uh, you know, it looks like Mr. Polyev is going to win the leadership, and I don't think he's going to moderate his message in the short term. I think the caucus and a great deal of party membership want that red meat uh, from Mr. Polyev. Uh, I think we all know, especially you and I who have worked in Ottawa, know that he is a master of communication and will sort of tailor his message to where the party and where the caucus is. And I think we're going to see that in the short term. The beauty that Mr. Polyev has, unlike Andrew Scheer when he became leader, or Aaron O'Toole when he became leader, is those two leaders only had a short amount of time to introduce themselves to the Canadian public before they faced the, the public in a general election. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were better at painting them into a corner than they were at painting Justin Trudeau into a corner, as, as evidenced by Justin Trudeau winning both of those elections. Mr. Paglia, though, has a little bit more uh, runway, a little bit more groundwork to be able to build those relationships with Canadians, introduce himself more to Canadians. And I think in the short term, we will see the same kind of messaging after Mr. Paglia between now and, say, Christmas, if he wins the leadership. I think the question is, what happens after that when we get into the regular cut and thrust of, of Parliament, the House of Commons? I don't think we're facing an election anytime soon, contrary to what some other people think. And I think that's where we're going to see, does he moderate his message at all? And I think it's, it's, it's TBD at this point. Uh, I don't think we're going to see it, though, in the short term. All right. That's Gary Keller, uh, longtime conservative strategist, uh, VP at Strategy Corps, and former boss of mine. Gary, thank you for coming on the show so much, sharing your insights. And it's lovely to talk to you. Hopefully you can do so in person and not just over the radio sometime soon. Great to be with you. I'm looking forward to that in-person cocktail. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. All right, a woman was stunned, stunned by the vegan meal. She got on a flight and took to TikTok to shame the airline. You won't believe what happened next. We'll bring you that and more on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, and this is Free For All Friday. And all summer long, you get two extra, you get an extra hour, I should say, two full hours with me from noon to two. Uh, this first hour, we talk to newsmakers, and the second hour, we obviously get into the panel debate about the biggest news of the week. And this story uh, caught our attention. Uh, you know, airline food isn't fabulous at the best of times, to be fair. You know, I, although I will say I flew Air France to Paris, and yes, I'm sounding bougie when I say this, and the food was really good, and I was delighted, <laughs> like a couple months ago. And it was very, it also could be it was my first international flight in um, in a while, so I was I was just super pumped and excited to be on there. Um, but most of the time, it's not that great. And as someone who actually has dietary issues, uh, so I've ordered gluten-free meals and dairy-free meals, you know, sometimes you just get your rice cake and an apple. Um, but our next guest, it th- 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 goes even further for our next guest, was left stunned when the vegan meal she'd ordered on her international flight was, well, a little less than expected. Uh, this is Miriam Porter. Uh, she's a travel blogger, and you can actually follow her on TikTok. Her handle is at thekindtraveler. Uh, and she posted her her story to TikTok, and the reaction has been unexpected. So Miriam joins us to talk about this. Miriam, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> per- well, perfect. Well, I'm glad y- you've made it and you <laughs> survived the flight. But it's but so tell funny. our listeners what happened. So you well, or you you yeah, go to board on this flight. To say that I know there's a lot of problems with air travel, and people are having their whole vacations canceled. People are sleeping on the floor of Pearson. People are sleeping anywhere they can. So I know that in the greater scheme of things that there's worse things, but when you're really hungry on a plane and like everyone's having this hot cooked meal and it smells so good and you're like, but where's mine? It's, it's a little bit annoying. I don't think I said I was stunned. That's a line that they said, but I was definitely annoyed and frustrated um, that my food did not arrive after ordering it. Cause they say, you know, when you, once you've ordered the food, you know, you can double check. And I've, I've always double checked because things like this have happened before. And I'm usually super prepared on my flight um, from Toronto to Germany. I was prepared with my own food and I needed it because there was issues there as well. I just didn't make a video about it. Um, sorry, what was the question that you asked me? So, again? yeah, no problem. So you, you, you're, you're traveling from Toronto to Frankfurt, Germany. Yeah. You've ordered your, you're a vegan. So you ordered your vegan meals and you get on the flight and what happens? So I had got on the flight and they start the meal service and usually the special meals um, are the first to arrive and mine didn't. So I was like just trying to be patient, even though I was really hungry because the night before I didn't have dinner either because we were on a delay and I didn't get to a hotel until 2.30 in the morning and everything was closed. Um, So I asked. Uh, the flight attendant, you know, and I ordered a vegan meal and I showed her like the, you know, a little coupon or whatever it is, the boarding card. And she's like, oh, there's no special meals on board this flight. And I was like, oh, I'm 100% sure. I even double checked. Um, and she just said that they were gone and there was nothing. And she said she would see what she could do. Um, but she also said I should always be prepared and bring my own food. But she felt so a little bit of backstory is that we were back on that same flight that we were on yesterday, the first day of travel. The, f- the flight stood or sat on the tarmac for six hours and never took off because there was a bunch of issues with it. I guess that's air travel these days. So we all had to get off the plane after six hours. And during that time, we were given a little bottle of water and um, a granola bar. The granola bar was actually vegan, which was exciting. It was a made good bar. So I was very happy. Um, so I hadn't had dinner the night before. And she, so it was the same crew, the same pilot, the same crew. So they had all known 
what had happened. So she had said, oh, well, you should bring your own. I'm like, I, I, you know what happened. I, I was at, at a hotel. There was no way. I had no time. Um, but then I spoke to somebody else who remembered me from yesterday. Uh, really, really nice, caring, kind flight attendant who brought me. He said he'll see what he can do from business class meals. And he brought me, I think it was like an apple and a banana. And I was so happy. Um, and I think it was like a little dinner roll, which at the time I was just thrilled. I was like, I thanked him a million times. And then I asked him later because I was still really hungry. I'm like, do you have anything left over? So he found, for the second meal, he found me another granola bar. And listen, I was very grateful for it. But like all around me, people are having their meals and like they're big meals, you know? Um, so, so I made a little tape talk about it. So Miriam, I just want to I just want to set with the listeners so they they understand because I know it's like kind of a lot going on. So you get on your flight, you've ordered your vegan meals, and at first they just bring you a water bottle, right? And then eventually, yeah. like, so, so first you're served. This is your meal. It's a water bottle. bottle. I'm like, well, this sucks. I'm starving, and everyone was eating, and all I had my was a water bottle. And as a journalist and photographer, I, I take photos of a lot of things, so it, I just took a picture of my water bottle. And okay, I and posted it while, it. Every, while everyone was eating it, while everyone was and, eating their food. And then you post about it on TikTok. Obviously, you mentioned that the eventually the even though it was a long flight, people they took pity on you and stopped serving you water and instead actually got you a a, a meal put together. But then you posted on about it TikTok. Yeah, it was like an apple and a banana. But yes. Yep. So what happened when you posted about it on TikTok? Um, I got a lot of comments. Some were, you know, they understood that it was like I was laughing. They understood the music I chose, and then there was some that were really, really awful. I've actually was hesitant to even do this little, uh, this interview because I've received like death emails from people saying I should die, uh, terrible things to me, calling me names, um, I guess because I, I don't know why. <laughs> people don't like vegans maybe. Um, I, would, I, I don't know. Um, someone made, some people made some comments on the TikTok about I shouldn't be so high maintenance. And that started like hundreds of people posting. I, that was when I took a break and stopped responding. Um, I wasn't trying to push my views on anyone. Uh, veganism is responsible for animal agriculture and factory farming is destroying the earth, but that's not what that TikTok said. All I said was that my meal didn't arrive. Um, and people got really, they take it personally, but there was also tons of people who were supportive. Someone said, I only had three slices of bikini. People were sharing their, their horror stories. Yeah, there was a lot of negativity around it as well. Um, I guess you got to take it with a great assault. (laughs) Were you surprised at the re- I mean, you know, it's I get it that veganism is a is a debate that people have and fair enough, although you point out you weren't really debating that. You were just saying I would yeah, like something other than a bottle of water. Like but yeah. were you surprised at the I mean obviously death threat seems a bit extreme. Were you surprised by yeah, that? Yeah, it was not so much a death threat, but saying he's not like he was gonna come and kill me, but he wanted me to be dead. Um that was not fun. <laughs> I mean, I've written some controversial articles in the past when I wrote about, like, for the Washington Post about raising my son um, as as a vegan, and I got some awful comments then. But this just seems so different. TikTok was just just a lighthearted seven-second video. So I was a bit surprised that people took it so personally that they had to reach out to me and tell me how terrible I am um, and how, like, I don't deserve to eat and it's my own choice and why you don't deserve food if you're a vegan anyways, um, which was kind of unkind, if you ask me. Yeah, I I think unkind is a small way of of saying that. So does this make you? And I'm just curious because you are you are a travel blogger, part of or TikToker, mm-hmm. like part of your at the kind travel. You 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 do this for you know your work. Yes. Does this make you second? I mean, this is part of your job, right? The people yes. people realize that this is part of you communicating about your experiences. Um, 
does this make you think twice about posting or are you just sort of taking this oh, as this is part no. of the world? Oh, it's lit the fire. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I always, I'm an animal rights activist, so I always want to speak up for the voiceless. I always want to talk about like the plant-based treaty in Toronto where people can sign up and learn how to live healthier lives. I, it's going to make me want to talk about it more. Um, I always help people ask me for help. Oh, how can I be vegan or how can I do this? I'm like, I always explain, you know, it's not all or nothing. You can start with meatless Mondays. You can work on one meal a week. Like even the Canada Food Guide has changed to encourage people to eat healthy. I mean, to save our planet, it's so important. There's no way I'll stop talking about it. I'll talk about it until every single cage is empty out of every animal in the world. Um, yeah, I won't stop talking. <laughs> all, all right. Well, Miriam, um, thank you for, for coming on and sharing your story. I'm sorry that you had that experience. And I assume going forward, you said you're usually careful, but I'm guessing you're going to have a, a bag full of snacks next yeah. time you step on a flight just I'll in definitely case we have to have some backup backup snacks for sure definitely <laughs> backup backup snacks will work they, all right well some extra power bars <laughs> perfect perfect thanks so much miriam well that's miriam porter she's a travel blogger um she was recently on an air canada flight traveling from toronto to germany and you can find her at the kind traveler uh, she had a, a pretty tough experience where she asked for her vegan meal got a bottle of water and then got this incre- incredible uh online reaction. She went viral at 1.4 million views. So just talking through that and her travel experience. So we wish Miriam well as she continues on uh, with her travels across the country and of course in other places. Um, next up, we, as we always do on the show at this time, we, we travel to another part of the province. How is your summer vacation going? Are you having a good break? We want to explore the different capitals of this country to see if maybe rather than go internationally, you should try coming to Canada or the Canadian capital, I should say. So Next up, we're going to take you to Edmonton, capital city of Alberta. And as I've just learned, has the largest indoor lake. We'll talk to them next. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we dig into the biggest news of the week. And of course, we're coming to our ongoing segment throughout the summer, Vacation Inspiration or Across Canada Road Trip, where we go to each of the provinces and territories and we're talking to every mayor of every capital. And this week's guest is Mayor Emerjit Sohi. He's the mayor of Edmonton. Uh, mayor Sohi, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Now, I was riffing a little bit before the break about Edmonton having the largest indoor lake, which I know is located inside the West Edmonton Mall, but yeah. I know you had a little clarification there, so I'd like you to you make that because obviously I haven't been to the lake or the beach, so perhaps you can let the listeners well, know. You should, well, you should about. come. You should come join us, and I'll buy you <laughs> beer when you come Perfect. there. It's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful beach, indoor beach, uh, right in the... Uh, one of the largest uh, shopping center, Western Metro Mall, uh, filled with kids and families every day you go there year round, not only in summer, but uh, it's a great getaway in uh, in winter months when it gets cold here. That makes, that makes lots of sense. So um, I have been to Alberta. Um, I have never, I've gone mostly north, Calgary and up. So if folks are thinking about traveling this summer, and I know Edmonton is supposed to be quite beautiful with all the like many trees, but what's your pitch to listeners from across the country to say you got to come to Edmonton? So we are a festival city. You come here in the summer uh, from um, June till September in, in, into October, 
you will have something to enjoy from a fringe festival which is right under underway now one of the largest and longest running theater festival in north america uh, last weekend we had uh, our folk festival which is three day long festival with international audience and interaction uh, uh, Kerry west is another good festival heritage festival where we celebrate uh, the diversity of Edmonton's communities where uh, you know different cultural groups have pavilions and dances and food so uh, there's a lot happening during uh, uh, during summer at the same time we are a winter city so we celebrate winter uh, our winters have the longest uh, sunlight days so come visit us during uh, during winter time as well I actually read that, that you are one of, I didn't know this, Edmonton is one of Canada's sunniest cities, and on average you get, an av- uh, on average, or 17 hours of daylight. So for all Absolutely. of us who are, like, desperate for sun, we should go to Edmonton. It's the sunniest city, and uh, the days are very long during uh, during summer. Uh, you know, rise early in the morning, and you go uh, uh, to bed late at night. And we have one of the longest urban parks. You know, people talk about uh, urban park in New York. But our urban park right in the middle of the city is 120 kilometers long. And you can walk or bike from one part of this, uh, the city to the other, and you will be in the wilderness while you're still in the middle of the city. So it's such a beautiful place to come and visit. And we have uh, great restaurants. We have uh, local breweries where you can go uh, for beer after long jog or after long uh, bike ride or get together with the with family so Edmonton is a place to be in summer and during winter as well so for folks that have been there before and obviously um I know you were you were just elected mayor before that you were the federal representative as I recall what mm-hmm. you know you've obviously been in the city for a while what's the sort of what's the secret sauce to, to Edmonton or a hidden gem that people wouldn't know about so there's a number of them. I talk about the River Valley. Our, I would say the biggest uh, uh, attraction for our city is that longest urban park in, in North America. Uh, and we are very humble people. We don't brag about uh, uh, what we have to offer, uh, but I, maybe we should, because the uh, world needs to know when they, uh, then they come to Edmonton what they're going to experience here in our, in, our, in our great city. We are a multicultural city. We are the youngest city, uh, uh, as well as, uh, you know, growing. Uh, our population is uh, uh, more than a million now, uh, and our target is to uh, be a, a a community of uh, 2 million people over the next uh, few decades. Uh, we are a thriving community in every aspect of it, from economy to uh, uh, society, to cultural, to arts. And I talked about our festivals, uh, great international global cuisine uh, uh, that is opening up in different parts of the city. So uh, come visit us. Now, you've, you've always been known in Canada for the West Edmonton Mall, which we mentioned kind of off the top. It was once the world's largest mall uh, spanning 48 city blocks. It's now the fifth largest, is my understanding. Is that still a major attraction? And would you still suggest people, people go to it? Uh, it is one of the attractions. Uh, but we also <laughs> have a very, very strong uh, uh, cultural scene. Uh, uh, we have the largest indigenous uh, communities population here and if you want to come visit us and experience uh, uh, rich 
history of indigenous peoples and your commitment to reconciliation, come visit us for, at, at Fort Redemptor Park and uh, go through indigenous peoples experience pavilion, which we just opened up last year. Um, and if you want to experience our multiculturalism, come visit us during heritage festivals. If you want to see, uh, great, want to listen to great, great music, come visit us during uh, uh, the the folk fest. Uh, you want to experience live performances, theater, come visit us uh, for uh, for the Fringe uh, International Festival. So we have a lot going in our city. All right. Is there any anything they shouldn't do? So anything we should not do when we come to Edmonton? Well, you should do everything. Uh, when you come to it, and uh, you know, and, uh, and, and our biggest strength is our people. Uh, we are easygoing people. Uh, we uh, we love greeting people. We love welcoming uh, uh, more people to our city, uh, and uh, you will find a sense of community that you will not find anywhere else. Amazing. Well, I will say, last week we talked to the mayor of Regina, and I was not expecting um, to want to visit there. And certainly, you've made a credible, a very credible pitch. To Edmonton, but Regina also mentioned they have a secret kind of a special kind of pizzas or any any foods or any you mentioned beer or anything that really stands out as something that you can find uniquely in in Edmonton. Oh, absolutely! Great restaurants here. Uh, a global cuisine. My favorite one is just uh, blocks away from City Hall. The uh, the Oil Lamp uh, is a Greek restaurant. Uh, we have local breweries. Sea Change is such a phenomenal and Sy. Uh, I uh, see is another local brewery here which, where I love, love going uh, after a hard, long day of work. I enjoy uh, a cold beer beer there and the best hikes as well. You know, in the River Valley, I talked about uh, you go you go for hikes here. Uh, you, if you stay at a hotel downtown, all you got to do is within minutes, step down to the River Valley and go for a jog and a hike. This is just a great place to be. Perfect. All right, Mayor. This is Mayor Emerjeet So He's the mayor of Edmonton. Um, when I visit, I will definitely take you up on that beer. Thank you so much for coming Absolutely. on the show. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. Take care. Have a good weekend. All right. That was uh, Mayor Emerjeet So He's the mayor of Edmonton. That is the fourth largest city in Canada. If you're interested in visiting Edmonton, it sounds like it's a fabulous place with lots of great walks, uh, great food, uh, and very interesting. I did not know this, but Festival City, apparently they have more than 30 festivals annually and they're also home to canada's largest planetarium so those are all your fun facts as we go into our our summer break if you're still looking to travel or do anything fun this summer next up we are going to get into my favorite part of the show it's the free for all friday roundtable where we're going to talk to with natasha hall she's the co-host of montreal now and cjad 800 and sharon carr a former uh political strategist about some of the biggest stories in the week including equal pay for female athletes are airlines taking advantage of a loophole to screw over travelers? And should your 18-year-old pay rent? That's next on Free For All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. 
Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. This is the second hour we get into the biggest stories of the week with some of the smartest people across the country to talk about them in debate. Now, joining me today is Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD 800 in Montreal, obviously, and Sharon Cower, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau and political strategist. Natasha and Sharon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for to be here. Amazing. And also, we are an all-woman panel, which pleases me greatly, by the way. this is There's always good days when it's all ladies. <laughs> on the I'm with you. They're <laughs> rare, as I'm sure Natasha would know, but they come uh-huh. occasionally. <laughs> Far too rare, but it's good. We'll, we'll relish every moment. <laughs> Indeed, we shall. Uh, right. So airlines are back in the headlines this week, but it's a whole new story. So as many of us know, or don't, and I'll tell you, in 2019, the federal government introduced what they call Air Passenger Protection Regulations, or we kind of colloquially call it the Air Passenger Bill of Rights. So basically, when you fly, if stuff's delayed or your things are lost, you're entitled to a certain amount of money, and the government guarantees that. But there seems to be a disagreement between the airline, the Canadian Transportation Agency, which enforces this, and passengers. This is uh, Alan Zurani, who's one of the passengers who's frustrated with Air Canada changing his flight to Germany 12 times in just 24 hours. It's a chaos. It's, I think it's, uh, they don't have enough staff. The delays and all these changes, 12 times change, it is too much. One time is okay, two times is okay, but 12 times <laughs> and finally cancel. Zurani is still waiting for compensation. They were supposed to reimburse us at least a portion of uh, the, the fare. So the issue is the government issued a decision on July 8th that clarified that in general, airlines can't deny passengers compensation for flight disruption caused by crew shortages. Airlines have been saying, well, we, yes, we know we're on, on the hook, but as, as long as it's not a safety issue, and they say they're mandated to have a certain number of crew on, and if it's not safe to fly, if they don't have the crew, then it's a safety issue. Under federal rules, as we know, airlines have to pay compensation, so it's up to 1000 bucks per passengers. The Canadian Transportation Agency has come back and said, well, training and staffing is within airlines' control. So it actually is their fault, and they need to pay it. Now, we had earlier this week on the Evan Solomon Show, Duncan D., former Chief Operating Officer for Air Canada, um, was asked about this. This is what he said. And so in this case, when we're talking about safety-related crew constraints, that basically means crews are not – the airline is not able to simply tell crews to continue operating flight beyond their duty day. So a duty day is what the government says is a safe number of hours a crew can operate any given day. He says 60 flights every week are being held somewhere off terminal waiting to be allowed to offload their customers because custom halls are full, which means? Crews that are being held off gate two to three hours and accumulating the amount of time that they're allowed to work every single day. So when those crews exceed the number of hours they can work on a given day, the next flight they're going to operate is also impacted. And the next flight could be delayed or it could be canceled. So in this case, it becomes truly a safety issue. All right. So it's a, it's a airline. He said, she said, she said, she said situation, Natasha, who in the, in the passengers are caught in the middle, but Natasha, who do you think is right here? Is it the airline or is it the passengers? Um, I mean, it falls somewhere between the two, but if I have to choose just one side, I'm, I'm going with the passengers, 100%. Um, staffing technically is within an airline's control. COVID and the whole situation surrounding that um, obviously is not, but to some degree, right? I, I want to... 
I came across this uh, tweet earlier this week by a, a comedian, Steve Hofstetter, that I thought just summed it up so well. So I'm going to read it quickly. He said, uh, dear hotels, restaurants, airlines, and everywhere, if you don't have enough staff to handle your normal amount of customers, stop taking your normal amount of customers. You're not understaffed. You're overbooked. So we know Air Canada at one point was like, whoa, 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 hang on, we can't handle this. We're going to cut some flights in the month of August. But the situation had already existed for, what, four months at that point? Get your act together here, people. And and by the way, if you want to file a complaint, um, we spoke to both uh, Siobhan Morris from News Talk 1010, who waited 43 days to get her baggage back. <laughs> yeah. And we also spoke to Tom Uman from the Canadian Transport Agency. Um, there's a one-year delay, so don't be trying to cash that check like, you know, two weeks from now. Um, they are one year behind on treating those complaints. So good luck to us all. A whole year. Well, that just inspires mm-hmm. confidence. Um, Sharon, you've been inside government. Uh, I'm sure, well, you weren't, I don't think you worked at transportation. Um, you sort of watch these things fly around. Who do you think uh, is right? Is the is the airline right or passengers right? Uh, Listen, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say it's the passengers as well. Like there's, to a certain extent, like airlines, as, as well as many other industries, need to stop kind of blaming the passengers and blaming everything else. It's like we're, we're coming at this point where we're, we're kind of coming out of COVID and people are trying to get back to normal and, but they haven't hired up, they haven't staffed up. So it's this, this whole like blaming the passenger stuff is getting a bit tiring in my perspective. Like I watched, I was following Siobhan's case actually with her lost luggage and like absolutely absurd. Like, and it's like, okay, well, here's 40 bucks for your inconvenience. Like that's not going to solve it. That's not going to help it. So I think there needs to be a bit of a reckoning with these guys. Well, and she has to beg to get that, 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 those 40 bucks, right? You don't automatically, when your luggage goes missing, you don't automatically get refunded even what you paid to book those bags, which is outrageous. And Sharon, when you're talking about blaming people, I mean, when it starts at the very top, when our Minister of Transport, (laughs) our federal minister, Omar Galbra, is blaming passengers, um, you know, it's, at some point, it's like, where does the buck stop? Because the buck has got to stop somewhere. And I'm by no means in the business of, of defending multi-million dollar businesses. But I do understand that it has been an incredibly difficult time for airlines. Um, and they're trying to recoup some of their, their losses. However, this is not the way to do it. Book yeah, fewer no, flights if you can't it, take the passengers. Exactly. And it's, it's just this whole concept of, okay, well, they need to recoup their costs and they need to make up for it. And it's like, you weren't isolated. I know they were severely impacted, but I agree. Listen, especially with airports, and if we look at Pearson here, it's been passing the buck central on every single aspect of it. So I think that at this point, I don't know, maybe they need a bunch of women to come run shop. or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you, I think you, you brought in a little bit about the government, right? And it starts at the top, Natasha. And just mm-hmm. curious to you, because CTA has issued this decision that says, hey, no, other than extreme circumstances, staffing and training is within airlines control. So it's up to you to, to have the appropriate amount of people. Um, so they've issued the decision, and yet the other the airlines are still saying, nope, we still are not going to pay you even after that July 8th um, deadline. So does this mean... The government, aka the Canadian Transportation Agency, or eventually Transport Transport Canada, needs to step in and ratchet up fines. Do they need to enforce this Bill of Rights, or is this just proof that these things don't really work? How about they do 
anything, like something, anything would be good. <laughs> but it seems to me, if anybody, I, I can't believe that, that Omar Al-Galbra still has his job, to be honest. We've spoken to him many times. He's a lovely man and he's great to talk to, but I don't think he's very good at the job. So in terms of accountability, I think it has to start there because they simply have not done what needed to be done. And if, if that means, yes, um, finding the airlines and making them more accountable, then, you know, I'll take it. Just start doing something. Well, it's kind of, I think, yeah, it's kind of, so it, it's funny. Listen, like Omar, I've known Omar for a very long time and I, I like to call him a friend. So I'm, I'm going to be a bit kinder here um, in terms of what I say, but this seems like it's kind of the entire state of government as a whole right now, whether it's to do with hospitals, whether it's to do with airports, mm -hmm. yeah, with, with everything. And I, and I don't know if it's people have just become complacent or, um, this is a sign of a government that's been around for too long, but it's kind of become this across the board, like pass the buck. No one's actually doing anything like this is the prime opportunity and time to get out there and be a warrior to solve an issue. And it's 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 kind of like no one cares. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a major issue. And I think, Sharon, there's a little bit of I particularly with the passport thing, frankly, is, is people do not like i don't want to sound like kim kardashian but like people do not want to work like they want to work remotely they don't want to be in the office they don't want to come in they want to be remote and we've seen some of the arguments that have been happening with the i think it's a public sector union around hybrid mm -hmm. work listen there has been so many great things that have come out of kind of working from home and allowing you to take back some of your life but when it comes to operating a government like listen at a certain point you got to get off your butt and just like you got to go in. There's some aspects of it that you still have to. And I'm not talking about like just have to jump in there, Sharon. We're just sorry. We're just running out of runway. You can do the after the break. Uh, next up, Montreal Pride was canceled at the very last minute. Is that okay? That's next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we dig into some of the biggest stories in the country with some amazing panelists. And today, as mentioned earlier, we've got an all-star, all-female panel with Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD 800 in Montreal, and Sharon Cower, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau and political strategist. Now, Sharon, you were just making a quick point before we had to cut you off with the National Clock at the break. So did you want to finish your thought there? Yeah, I guess what I was just what I was saying is that we're we're getting to this point in time where there's such a level of dysfunction in how things amongst within government are operating like we were talking about passports airlines kind of everything and uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are so used to this concept of work from home as a result of covid now there's going to probably be a total shift across like across all workforces around hybrid workplace but with the government a lot of the issues that we're having with for example at passport offices because people are sitting at home so my two cents and advice would be is everyone needs to get off their butt and find a way to accommodate um, <laughs> this, this new world that we live in um without impacting people's lives of like making them sleep outside in tents outside of passport offices so, get, so like kim kardashian said you gotta work folks there we are uh well <laughs> The, the dysfunction is not limited to government, uh, as Natasha will well know, and I'm really eager to get her take on this one. Uh, but the city of Montreal went through a bit of a shock 
as uh, the independent, uh, sorry, the city's annual pride parade was canceled at the very last minute with little, no, almost no notice and to much outrage. So Montreal Mayor Valerie Plante ha- says the city will be redirecting the remaining funds that they had put towards Montreal Pride to an independent investigation into why the flagship parade was canceled just hours before it started. Uh, the mayor outlined her plan when she was being interviewed by our very own Natasha and Aaron Ran on CJD's Montreal Now broadcast, calling the cancellation a fiasco. For this event... Everything was done correctly by the city of Montreal and the SPVM. The night before, I mean, we've been in constant discussion mm-hmm. because let's not forget it happens on streets and our parks. So we know everything. So this is why I was so shocked in the morning. She then went on to say that she called her team. Nothing was shared with them in advance and that a, a, a trust link or a trust between the, the groups between the city and Montreal Pride needs to be reestablished. There is a trust link that needs to be reestablished. And let's be honest, what happened on Sunday has an impact on Montreal reputation. Now, the city had invested over $600,000 into the festival and had not been informed prior to the decision. Now, this is early this week, Montreal Pride Executive Director Simon Gamache spoke to CTV Montreal about the last minute cancellation of the parade. So totally on our uh, part, that was a mistake happened. Uh, so uh, we did not uh, request all the resources that we needed today to deliver the parade. He also said they were short about 80 to 100 volunteers. The parade, I mean, it's a really complex organization. So what we're really lacking now, yes, there were some volunteers that were missing, but this was mostly people that we hire. We call them uh, welcome, welcome agents that, you know, so that, that's people who are hired. Uh, that's what we were lacking today. So... You know, we we just talking now. All of a sudden, the Montreal Pride is the same issue, which they can't find people. Same issue as airports, um, but it resulted in this kind of stunning last-minute cancellation. Now, in Toronto, we've had kind of some drama with our Pride um, organization, but it always sort of manages to go to happen, regardless. Uh, but Natasha, curious as you as a host of Montreal now, I'm sure you covered the story. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened and and you know, is this acceptable that the that this you know a major city festival sort of canceled the morning of last minute? Oh, no. I mean, honestly, we're still as I'm listening to that, I'm still in a state of disbelief. I'm still shaking my head and saying this, this didn't happen, right? It didn't actually happen that the morning of the Pride Parade where tens of thousands of people were supposed to gather, you know, it was canceled just hours before it was supposed to begin. Um, There, you know, I, I found the mayor to be, listen, she was somewhat forgiving of the organization, but also not taking any accountability. I was like, if you're investing that amount of money, there was a lack of communication on some level. You can't just assume that everything's going to go off with a hitch. Someone on some level should be checking in to say, do you have everything you need? And the story changed to what we just heard from Simon Ganache, um, the, the organizer of the event. Um, initially, it was they were missing 80 volunteers. Then it was a, an oversight where they forgot to hire security staff. The police were ready to go. They were not consulted. They said had they been consulted, they may have been able to step up and help out. The city was not consulted. Also said had they been consulted, they would have been able to possibly help out. The public at large and all those people who were are attending the Pride, and when I say that everybody attends, I mean everybody attends. Like from every possible like citizen, from every walk of life, every politician, um, every public figure in Montreal, everyone goes, had the call been put out, we need 80 to 100 people to help out and get this done. It would have gotten done. 
So we're all still totally and completely baffled. Thankfully, there will be this uh, investigation, this inquiry to see what truly happened here. And we're talking about the $600,000 that the city invested, and they didn't make the final payment um, to pay for that um, inquiry now. They're holding back those funds. But overall, we're talking about $6 million of public funding here. Now, the whole week was a success, um, but you're, we're never going to get over this blemish that the parade didn't happen. I mean, it's just, it's beyond shameful. So, so Natasha, I'm going to get you, Sharon, because I really want your perspective, because you were just involved, um, you know, with, the, I think, the like the Pope's trip. So you've done lots of logistics in your time in government. But, Natasha, am I just, I've participated in many pride parades in Toronto. I've walked in them. Mm-hmm. I think Sharon has as well. And so am I to believe, actually, like the mayor, the premier, you know, the floats are ready, everybody's good to go, and then you're just told, like, sorry, you got to go home because we don't have 100 moments. Like they just canceled. Like that's all that. That's, that's literal. That's what happened hours before. <laughs> we ever, and when I say that, like I'm still sitting here slack jaw. I can't. Be, I'm gobsmacked and stunned that this happened. And I feel like Montreal. You know, this is such a wonderful thing about Montreal, and so many things go off without a hitch here. But somehow we still have a reputation as being the city where things go wrong. You know, from potholes to to payoffs, and this just makes us. It looks so bad. Yeah, and for for listeners at home, just to even I don't I don't assume it's similar, but for big parades like this, you muster much earlier, right? So if we're parading at let's say one o'clock or two o'clock, you there's muster stations and everybody meets, and you're you're sitting there. I remember my first pride parade, I danced around for the first four hours. I was waiting, and then by the time we had to do the march, I was completely exhausted. <laughs> That's um, totally so how it the, goes. Yeah, <laughs> these people are waiting, right? So yeah. Sharon, I mean, you've you've organized major events, you've organized um, G20 conferences. Um, you've, you've, you were actually part of organizing my very first pride parade when I was with the mayor and kind of getting all that going. Um, what do you make of this in the behind the scenes sort of, uh, chicanery, if we will? Um, okay. So call me crazy, but you don't leave your issue of volunteers and security till like the 11th hour. Like I'm, I'm having a really hard time understanding. I feel like there's a bigger story here that we Mm -hmm. have to uncover, but I'm having a really hard time believing and even just understanding like it's just that they didn't realize they had this shortage until the day of or the morning of like, this is impossible. Like you have anyone who plans and organizes event. Like you said, I just got off of a whirlwind of working on logistics for the Pope's tour here in Canada. And I can't even like fathom to think that, Oh, okay. Like the morning of, Hey guys, we don't have the Swiss guard here to guard him. We're going to cancel. Like that's stuff that you just think about in advance. Same thing when you plan any type of summit. And like, for example, Toronto, Toronto pride parade, which is like always huge, huge, huge. They don't wait till the weekend of to get volunteers. This is something that you're signing up well in advance and you would have known this was going to be an issue. So to me, it seems like there's a bigger issue and they're using this as a cover-up. And I don't want to sound crazy, but I feel like this is a cover-up. Well, yeah, I can't disagree. Like, yeah, I'm sorry, Natasha, I got 30 seconds left. So can we, so this investigation happens, when will there be results? Well, I don't know. We we don't have a timeline. All I know is that we asked, will the you know the city be asking for any of that money back? Will they reschedule the parade? And it was no on both those fronts. And uh, you know we're all still just left here absolutely stunned and hugely disappointed. It's such a beautiful thing, the Pride Parade. You guys know you've been in them, yeah. the party atmosphere, the celebration, and to have that not happen just because somebody blew it. Some it, it can't be that simple. There has to be more to it. 
Yeah, agreed. And I will say that Pride is one of my favorite. That's why the story grabbed my attention. It's one of my favorite times in Toronto. So if that happened here, um, we'd be running around demanding answers. So hopefully Montreal. There's got to be accountability. Yeah, there has to be. Absolutely. So next up on the panel, should women make less than men when it comes to sports? Apparently that's happening right here in Toronto. We'll talk about that next on Free For All Friday. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We're we're on Free For All Friday where we dig into some of the biggest stories of the week. And with me to debate them is Sharon Cower, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau and a current political strategist, and Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD 800 in Montreal. So as I mentioned before the break, this story, and I talked about this off the top of the show as well, um, that this story really caught my attention. You know, there are remarkable women in sports, and one such remarkable woman, Serena Williams, announced this week that she is evolving from, not retiring, but kind of retiring, uh, from tennis. She was asked by reporters on Monday what drives her to play tennis these days. This is how she responded. I guess there's just a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) What is that like? I don't know. I'm getting closer to the light. So that's... (laughs) Yeah, so that's like, lately that's been... That's been it for me. I can't wait to get to that light. She went on to explain what the light represents to her. Freedom. Yeah. I love playing, though. It's, it's like, it's amazing. But, you know, it's like, I can't do this forever. So it's just like, sometimes you just want to try your best to enjoy the moments and do the best that you can. So she bid an emotional goodbye to Canada on Wednesday. It was her last game in Toronto yesterday and her last game ever in the city. And, of course, the sold-out crowd gave Williams a number of standing ovations and bouquets of roses. I said in my article, I'm terrible at goodbyes, but uh, goodbye. (laughs) Toronto! And obviously, goodbye, Canada. And this all happened as she was playing in what we now know as the National Bank Open. It's a tournament in Canada, both in Montreal and Toronto, previously known as the Rogers Cup. Uh, The total purse for men in the tournament, who are playing in Montreal, is 5.9 million U.S. That's more than twice as much as a woman get in Toronto, which is 2.6 million. Now, what that means is the men's champions will win twice as much as the female's champions. Basically, that's the, the, the purse is the total for all the players. So men will get $900,000, just short of a million, basically compared to 439000 Now, this gap persists in this sport, even though the tennis majors have been equal since 2007. Wimbledon, both men and women get $2.5 million. The argument being made by folks like Tennis Canada and some other people is that, well, women attract less ad dollars, less eyeballs, so that's why we pay them less for example, Tennis Canada said they earn 10 times more on their global broadcast revenue from men's than from women. My question to the panel and to you at home is, should we accept that? I don't think we should. I don't think we should. I think this is a ridiculous argument. I think we should be paying female players, athletes equally. And I think tennis is a great example of a place where, frankly, female athletes, Bianca Andreescu, um, Serena Williams, they are the stories of this tournament. So to me, this is not this is not on. But Sharon and Natasha, Natasha, I'll go to you first. Woody, are you, do you think it's okay to pay female athletes less in these scenarios given they bring in less ad dollars, or is this just more excuses? I think you know my answer. <laughs> 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 I think, but I'm looking listen, forward I to love, it. 
Right. I love that we're an all woman panel to discuss this because I would bet my bottom dollar that each of us has had to deal with is with this in some capacity, in some job, in some environment. Um, this is accepted but totally not acceptable. Um, we're talking about huge amounts of money in tennis, but I think it doesn't even matter how much money you're talking about. It, it boils down to the principle, right? Um, but specific to tennis and to women in sports, this is an antiquated idea that people want to see the men more than they want to see the women. Yes, that used to be the case. And yes, in some sports, to some degree, that is still the case. However, we continue to allow this to go on, right? The demand is clearly there. Um, women sports, particularly in tennis, there's, there's the, the appeal is massive, which means the money involved is massive. As long as we continue to allow it to happen, it will happen, right? So you're, they're saying, oh, well, the ad revenue is higher, the demand is higher for the men, but that's because you're not insisting on making it higher for the women. You could demand more and it would be there. I'm sick of hearing excuses from the ATP or the WTA. That, that's enough. Ça suffit, as we say here in Quebec. It's outrageous. <laughs> it is unacceptable. Uh, Sharon, what's your take? I'm. I'm actually. I had no idea. One of their excuses is what. I, this isn't purely an excuse. Was that women don't bring the same ad dollar? Like, this is exactly why we're in this position. Like, if you can't treat women equally on one end, how can you on the other? Like, this is just. It's garbage. It's. It's complete. Complete BS. And honestly, and. We like to think that we've come so far in society, but yet we're seeing stuff like this constantly. And especially in sports, women are not treated as equal. And we're seeing this clearly and we should demand that they do things differently because this is like, this should not be acceptable, like period. Yeah, and it was interesting to me, right? Because it kind of reminded me of the arguments in the 50s, which is like, oh, well, you know, women, they don't attract as much like women didn't need, oh, they don't need the income, right? They don't need as much. So we'll pay them half as much money. Um, they're not as interesting. And I, I, I kind of, I challenge that a little bit. I think they, you know, and frankly, it's, it's odd to me that in Canada, you know, like the spots, like it's still happening. Like the sponsors should be saying this is not on. Like, like I'm saying national bank very many times on the show. So I hope their media monitoring picks it up and they get enough heat on this. And this is, this was raised by the Toronto star as well. Like it, to me, I just don't see how in 2022 when Wimbledon's been doing it since 2007, that this is, this is just a, a process that is accepted and fine that female athletes are, you know, and they're still treated in very variety of sports, right? They're uh, do they fly mm -hmm. first class like the men? Probably not. In some cases, as I'm guessing, soccer went through something similar uh, and basically they actually had to, they've just recently said they're going to pay the women equally. So like how many of these conversations do we have to have before sport wakes up and says, okay, it's not all right to pay women less just because, you know, we think people are less interested in them. I don't know, Natasha. I'd be very curious. I'm not opening our text line right now because if I were to open it, I know there yeah, would don't. be some comments on there to just infuriate me. Um, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about what happened with women's hockey in Canada, which was totally and completely shameful, and again should not have been allowed to happen. Um, when we look at, at soccer, we look at basketball. Women's sports are on the rise. We have to support that. We have to nurture it. And that means demanding more uh, on every level, more, but certainly when it comes to, to pay. Um, as, it, I'm going to come back to the same point that I made before, which is that it will remain acceptable as long as we continue to accept it, right? But, but it is not 
okay. And it sends a terrible message to our, to our girls. I mean, I'm the, I'm the mom of a 10 year old girl who, and I, she thoroughly, truly with every ounce of her being believes that she's equal to, to boys. Like she, it doesn't occur to her. That's how I, you know, she's, she's grown up and she's been programmed that way. That sounds wrong program, but you know what I mean? Hmm. That's what she believes. And, and all girls should feel that way. But at some point, that my 10 year old girl is going to figure out, Hey, wait a second. How come that guy, how come he's getting those opportunities? How come he's getting that money? And I'm not, how come he gets picked for the team and I don't. Um, so we have to fight and it's ridiculous to say that we're still in this situation, but again, looking at what happened with women's hockey in this country, that fight is far from over. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's interesting if, um, I would encourage people to actually read Serena Williams has like a very lengthy piece in Vogue about her decision to leave tennis. Um, and she, she wrote about her reluctance to do so. And actually it was interesting. She talked about being a female athlete and kind of the burden of being a female athlete. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she, she wrote, you know, if I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out playing and winning when my wife was home doing the physical labor of expanding her family. But for her, she said, I've got to get out there. I like, I've got to make a decision. Like I want to have more kids and I can't do this while playing tennis. So she's chosen to remove herself from that. And as like, as, as we were talking at the break, like I'm eight months pregnant right now. And I'll tell you, I'm not like super genetically engineered to stop working. Like, I don't want to stop hosting the show, but I have to step away from that to do that. And that's fine. But I, I really felt for her um, as she made that point. And I think there's like a, you, you know, we should be paid equally as women, but there's also uniqueness to the place of female athletes and, and people like Serena um, when they do that. And I wonder if we need to do more as well in sport. Uh, to accommodate that. And Sharon, I've given you about 20 seconds to respond to that. So sorry about that. <laughs> anyway. oh, like I, listen, I would say, yes, we have to do more. And I think we have to demand more and people don't, I know people sometimes don't want to hear about it and they don't want to continue the argument or talking about it, but until we see a true equal balance, um, just like Natasha's daughter sees it like that. She sees that because that's the fact and that's the truth. And it's so sad that society is going to ruin that one day for for our, our younger generations when they realize it. So I would just say, like, we got to keep speaking up and we got to keep disturbing the shit about this because if we don't, then that's how they continue down this path. There we go. More panels like this. We'll keep talking about it and hopefully the sponsors mm -hmm. take notice. All right, after the break, a mother has sparked a heated debate when she asked her son, who's 18, to pay rent. Do you think kids should pay up? That's next on Free For All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello, happy Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we debate some of the biggest stories of the week with some amazing panelists. And this week we have Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD 800 in Montreal, and Sharon Cower, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau and political strategist. So this story is interesting, and we like to have a little fun in this segment, so we're going to hopefully have a little fun with this. Uh, I, I think I may know where we land, given our uh, Kim Kardashian people don't want to work anymore. But a mother sparked debate uh, when she posted on uh, a parenting forum to garner opinions about a dilemma she's having at home. So she was asking if she should make her 18-year-old son pay rent. Now, for background... Um, you know, he's just finished college. He's now working at home at a local hotel. It was a part-time job, but now it's a full-time job and he's going on to higher education. She goes on to specify that she's not going, she's not talking about food, 
but she is saying, do we pay for his haircuts, his clothing, his prescriptions? Do you want you know, his gym and rugby membership? Now, my perspective is she should make him pay rent. Um, and she should absolutely not be paying for that stuff. And I don't even know why you're paying for any of that stuff for an 18 year old if they have a part-time job, but that's, that's just me. Uh, I, I grew up in the school of, uh, Galbraith Hard Knocks where we, uh, we, I mean, my parents were wonderful, but I, my job was doing the laundry for the entire house. We cleaned the kitchen every single day. We did all the yard, we did the yard work, cleaning the pool. Like, you know, there was, the list goes on. Um, so I feel like if your kid's working full time, they're staying at home, uh, and they're not going on to further education, then it all is good to make them pay rent. But uh, Natasha, would you make your kid pay rent or is that being too hard? I mean, I'm all prepared to make the argument that I think about it with my actual kid and, and I, I think I would probably have a hard time. <laughs> it boils down to circumstances, right? So this mom in particular is like the, the budget is very tight and they're having a difficult time making ends meet. And I think if the 18 year old son is in a position to be able to contribute and help out on that front, then then absolutely. And then I say that and I think, well, wait a second, if you're in a great circumstance if you've got lots of money shouldn't that be all the more reason for your kid to 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 pay their way so that you can teach them the value of of money and having you know not being dependent upon their parents um i remember reading a story that i loved which was a family that that were in good circumstances but the parents decided to charge um their their kid uh room and board so they asked them to contribute to some for the food and groceries and stuff too um and they saved that money because they were in a fortunate enough situation that they didn't need it to make ends meet and they gave it back to that child when they were going to go look for their own home so that they had money to put towards a down payment and i thought now that is brilliant if you're mm -hmm. lucky enough to be in that situation I also want to just fess up quickly that I had an aunt who I really hope is not listening right now. When <laughs> we were kids, she made the, her, my cousins buy their own soap, their own shampoo. Um, they had their own roll of toilet paper, their own bags of chips. Like oh, they wow. had to pay. Yeah. And we all thought like that was awful. And yet I bet those kids are way better at managing their money now than the rest of us that were criticizing her. All right, Sharon, where do you land on this one? Listen, I'm, I, I have a cat. I don't have a child. So I feel like I'm going to come from a very different perspective. <laughs> but, Make that cat pay rent. <laughs> kind of like Natasha said, like, I think circumstance really matters. Like if you're, if your kid is, or like, depending on what your financial situation is, I'm, I come from an East Indian background where it, it's like a faux pas to do that with your children. It's like, it, there's, there's different cultural aspects to it, but Listen, if this kid is doing nothing and, uh, or if this kid is not like doing further education, um, but is working and has the means to help support his family, yeah, go for it. But it's all very, it's all very much based on circumstance. I don't believe that the second you turn of a certain age, your parents hand you over an invoice and say, here's what you owe him. Like you had children. There's also a combination of like ownership around having kids and like being a parent and doing all that. So um, I'm mixed on this one. It's again, all about circumstance. All right. Fair, fair enough. I will. And I will say, like, I went on to school. So my parents paid my, like, I Same, rented. Yeah. My parents gave me money for rent through my Same, school. But I still had to work. Did you still have to work? So on did the I. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I still worked. I worked the whole, I worked other than a couple months of my entire life. I worked since I was 13, like either part-time yeah. job or, or whatever. I, it taught me, I mean, I'm not the best money manager, full, full confession, but it certainly taught me to value it. Um, but I'm I didn't have to you. pay for my chips or my own yeah. toilet paper when I was young. That's well until I, I left the house. All right. This, this next one's uh, getting, getting quite a bit of reaction. 
So a CEO uh, from Columbus, Ohio, is well on his way to becoming sort of a huge meme. He posted a crying selfie of him, and it's sort of, you have to kind of see this to believe it, um, but it's a photo of him sort of right into the camera, tears streaming out of his eyes, really sad looking because he had to lay off some employees. Um, and as his post, as of this, we're speaking right now, it's been liked over 32,000 times, over 6,000 6, comments, and people are divided about whether or not this is admirable, that he was basically saying, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, I'm crying, um, you know, this is this is the most vulnerable thing I'll ever do, or if it's just cringeworthy and that, oh, I'm so sad for you that you're firing people, but at the end of the day, the people with the jobs are worse off. Now, for context, the company called Hypersocial specializes in LinkedIn marketing, where he posted this, and B2B client outreach strategy, and they reported the company, Bloomberg has reported the company has 15 employees, which are too fewer than before the layoffs. So, Natasha, is this cringe, or is this a new, softer, kinder, gentler CEO, and we should see more of this sharing? Ugh. God, no. I'm going to use a word that I, I very rarely use because I, it's not a word I like, but I hate this guy. I hate this guy. What a schmuck. What an absolute schmuck. I'm sorry, dude. Like, you feel bad. Imagine them and don't try and make it about you. And I know most of the comments have been to that end and I am just piling right on that big old mess. No, completely the wrong approach. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't try and get any kind of sympathy. Uh, you look like a schmuck. Uh, Sharon, is he, do you, are you, is he a schmuck or is he a sensitive man and a sensitive leader in a time where we need more sensitivity from CEOs? No, man, I'm totally with Natasha on this. If he was, if he was actually like, listen, I think men are totally, it's totally great when men are vulnerable and sensitive and want to show their sensitive side, yes, but this yeah. was all a yeah. game. This was a game. Like he posted it like with the tears that like, the picture itself, when I saw it, I kind of picture is ridiculous. It was just like, it was like so forced. And listen, this is a, um, a the current state of the tech sector, right? It's like they, they through the height of COVID, they thought they were like, like the new revolution of the world and hire too many people. And then when they have to let go of folks, it's like, oh no, this is emotional for us. But no, like be a better manager and, and like, no, just like I, I'm with Tasha. He's a schmuck on this for sure. Yeah. I, I and love I would that say, you, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Natasha. I just love that Sharon raised that idea, though, that like we should be trying to embrace men that are showing their emotions and doing away with toxic masculinity and, and, and embracing men showing their emotions. And yet <laughs> don't fake it and don't look for sympathy yeah. in this kind of situation. Like be well, real about it. Be honest about it. Like anyone who actually felt the emotion and pain of letting go of staff isn't going to sit there and take a cringy photo of themselves to put it online to be like, oh, I'm sad. I'm firing people. Like it's just, it's BS. Not to, not to mention the fact that it's hard on you. It's harder on the people that lost their jobs. And as someone who does like crisis communications all the time, people often try and make the story and leaders do about themselves. And I can't tell you how many times I have to tell CEOs, it's not about you. Um, it's not about your board. It's about the people that work for you. And it's about those people, that, even if there's just two of them that lost their jobs. Well, said. all right. That is, that's all the runway we have today. Uh, thank you so much, Natasha and Sharon for this fabulous all lady panel. Uh, I've, I've done it a few times in the show. It's always my favorite. Uh, thank you so much to technical producer, Tony and Sam for all your work behind the scenes. Thank you for listening. I hope you have an amazing weekend. I'm Amanda Galbraith and I'll see you next Friday.